HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Samantha Garner, and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Cheeselandian because I take cheese seriously, just like they do in Wisconsin. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. Hi, I'm Eli Sussman, host of The Line. On today's episode, I welcome St. Louis native Chef Ben Groupie. Like many traditional chef trajectories, Ben began his career in the industry as a dishwasher. He worked extensively at country clubs and became addicted to competition as team captain for the U.S. Culinary Olympic team in 2016 and competed in the Boku Store, the most prestigious culinary competition in the world. He was recently a James Beard Award semifinalist in 2018 for Best Chef Midwest. His new restaurant venture, Tempest, opened after a year of delays in October 2020. Never planned as a takeout or a to-go restaurant, we speak extensively on this episode about opening up a restaurant during a pandemic and the unique challenges Ben has faced as a brand new operator. Now, on to the episode. So you're a St. Louis guy, right? You were born there? Correct, yes. And you, you've done a lot of cooking there over the years, and, uh, and you kind of worked your way up through the ranks. You have a, 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 a some sort of a traditional trajectory in the sense is that you started as a dishwasher, which a lot of people do. Right, right. So where was that first job? How old were you? And, uh, and what was that experience like? Did, did you catch a bug from it or was it just a job to make some extra bucks on the side? So it was kind of all encompassing. Um, the first job I had, I was, uh, I had to actually get a work permit. It was like 14 and a half. Um, a friend of mine's dad worked at this banquet facility that was in St. Louis. Um, and I would just go in and more or less, help bus tables, help with party cleanup. It was a banquet facility, so um, nothing too uh, nothing too exciting or complex there. But that's kind of, that was kind of my first introduction to the hospitality industry. But my first kitchen job, I was a dishwasher. That was um, the small restaurant in Clayton, Missouri. It's called B. Tomas. It's no longer there. It was a small mom-and-pop joint. Um, but I took the position as a as a way to kind of hang out with my friends and I, you know, didn't take it seriously whatsoever. Uh, at the time, you know, it was just a way to more or less have fun and make some extra cash. When you were younger, high school age, maybe even uh, a few years before that, did you have dreams of doing something specific career wise or were you not really sure what you wanted to do? Did you fall kind of backwards into food or was it always pretty much the career path for you? I kind of fell back into it. Um, It was so throughout high school, a friend of mine and I had a lawn business. Uh, My good friend bought it from his from his brother, uh, when his brother went to college. Um, and we did that in the summer months, summer and spring. And, you know, it was cash money. It was, you know, we were working for ourselves. So I always kind of had that entrepreneurial drive or whatnot. Um, definitely didn't take it seriously whatsoever, but it was, you know, it was, we were in high school. We, you know, we were making cash, we were having fun. Um, and then in the winter months, I would, that's kind of when I started going, leaning towards, um, 
culinary or hospitality. Um, that's like I mentioned earlier, that's where I, you know, worked at this banquet, um, facility that did, you know, big wedding parties and whatnot, but then literally fell into a dishwasher position that kind of set me on that culinary trajectory to where I am now. When I look at some of the earlier places that you worked, I see, you know, a racket club, I see some country clubs and yeah. a, a lot of those places, uh, you know, I'll say, unfortunately, sometimes people tend to look down on those type of jobs as like not being truly culinary because there's right. not a lot of creativity in those type of jobs. But mm -hmm. I would I would say that they create a wonderful foundation for a cooking career based on a couple things. First, volume. Yeah. And and secondly, uh, repetition, even if the menu doesn't change that often, you can get really good at cooking something if you have to pick up, you know, a hundred chickens in a night, every Correct. single night, uh, you can really develop a huge amount of excellent skills that way. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about what those experiences were like at Meadowbrook and old, uh, Warson and just generally what you took away from those, uh, experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So <clears throat> I, I didn't really, I didn't, start taking um, this career or the culinary career seriously until I um, went to the kitchen of Chris Dessens at the Racket Club Ledoux in St. Louis. Um, he is one of my mentors, great friend of mine to this day still. Um, I still rely on him for, our, for consult and motivation. Um, but, you know, I... I started in his kitchen and that's where I really started taking it seriously. He really took me under his wing. He was at the time just to kind of wrap it up was he was trying out for the United States culinary Olympic team. He's the one that introduced me to the Greenbrier hotel apprenticeship program that I later became an apprentice at, but I, I did an apprenticeship underneath him for two years. And he's, he was, I consider him, the first part of my foundation, without a doubt. Um, and that's, that's what I really loved about the atmosphere and the environment in, in that country club's kitchen. It instilled kind of that discipline that a lot of places were not offering. It was, you know, your mise en place was always done the right way or done the same way every time. If it wasn't done the right way, you're always redoing it. It was... The repetition, like you mentioned, of banquets, the repetition of a la carte service. The menus changed frequently, but um, it was nothing that was like avant-garde or like cutting edge. It was all like real classical, classical French technique, classical sauces, you know, hollandaise sauces, bechamel sauces, um, poultry jus and beef jus, things of that nature. So it really kind of solidified a foundation for me. Um, the cool thing about those foundations is like those are true building blocks for correct. later on when yes. you want to get creative mm -hmm. and you do end up having some menu control. You right. think to yourself, well, I know how to uh, make a stock, which I can then turn into a sauce and I can butcher. Uh, were you learning all those types of foundational skills at those places or was that – did you learn those more at the at Greenbrier and the culinary program? Um, more of the fine tuning was done at the Greenbrier, but like throughout the places I've worked at throughout my career, like you know there was certain things that stood out at Racket Club, which were kind of like instilling that drive, instilling that discipline, and kind of really it gave me a glimpse into what you could be. And then when I went to Old Wars and Old Wars and that place was a monster. I mean, it was, you know, there were 20 cooks on the brigade. You know, there were, um, <laughs> it was a six day a week operation. Uh, and then like banquet season was just insane. I mean, we were, it, it was all about volume. So like what I took away from Old Warson was, you know, developing those leadership skills and of, commanding what to command and how to command from the cooks because you had cooks that ranged from like entry level that were green as the grass and then you had some cooks that were very you know a little more well seasoned um so you got it really got to learn how to push and get the most out of 
out of the team. But uh, of of most things, it was there. It was really fine tuning um, organization because of obviously doing such high volume, such, you know, you had banquets and a la carte service going on at the same time out of the same kitchen. Uh, so it was a little nerve wracking at times, but definitely took away organization and discipline from that place for sure. Do you enjoy that type of cooking, like a banquet style setup where you have to, you know, like for a wedding when, you know, everybody goes to a wedding and they just kind of resign themselves to the fact that, okay, the food's probably not going to be that great. I'm going to get a chicken breast with two little peeled baby carrots. But um, the food doesn't have to be bad. But I think what a lot of people don't understand is that picking up, you know, 250 entrees at the same time, mm-hmm. no matter how skilled the, the kitchen is, there right. are sometimes limitations on on how oh. <laughs> on how good it can be. A hundred percent. Yeah, it's very, it's, it's challenging. Um, do I enjoy it? Like in hindsight, not at all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like it's just because we were like constantly – like that was the norm. It's like, okay, we got a 500 plate up tonight. We got a 250 plate up tomorrow. We got this, like multiple plate ups going on at the same time. What the adrenaline rush of it was fun for me, like executing it to the best of your ability, all those, you know, cause you have, it's like whack-a-mole. You got many things going on at one, you know, fires putting out, not literally, but like things coming up, this party's running late, that party's running late. So like the orchestration of it is fun. Um, I could say not like I would enjoy to do it every once in a while, but like having that built into our repertoire every day is not something that I really want to do at this moment. (laughs) Sure. I, I hear that. I always thought that, you know, line cooking is a great way to obviously learn how to exist in a kitchen and it's great for fundamental skill building, but it doesn't do a huge amount to learn how to then go and open up a business. But I do think that there are a lot of practical applications to working in a high volume, more catering operation to running a business. There's, there's a lot of logistics Mm-hmm. That go, that go into a a catering banquet setup yeah. that are applicable once you start really managing people and personalities and customers Correct. and and pickups and timing and things like that. Yeah. Um, what are um, what are some of your major kind of uh, your takeaways now that you have your own place and you are. Uh, really, I mean, you've led kitchens before, but what I mean is now that you really are in charge of your own spot from top to bottom, are there certain things that you look back on those experiences and say, oh, wow, that I'm really drawing on something that I learned, you know, a decade ago in, in that kitchen or from that specific person? Yeah. I mean, I, I think one of the things that I kind of look back on the most was my times at the Greenbrier as an apprentice. Um, you know, this, uh, one of the sayings of Greenbrier Apprentices goes is like, once you graduate from the program, you're afraid of nothing. So like, and it, it kind of holds true. It's like, you know, it's some like the mountain of tasks and like the daunting future of kind of where we're at. It's like, all you can control is what's in your environment right now. And that's, that's what I'm focusing on. You know, it's, we can just keep doing our best day in and day out and just make it a little bit better tomorrow. But like, there's two of us, there's, well, three of us in the kitchen now. So imagine running a restaurant with doing decent volume with just three people. <laughs> you know, it's just, just with culinary, there's five of us total. Uh, so it's, it's, you're really the butcher, the baker, the dishwasher, the porter, shipping, receiving, accounting, payroll. You know, there's, there's many hats that you wear throughout the day. And it's, you know, it's, it's what I'm really grateful for in my past experiences, especially at the Greenbrier, was having mountains of work and expectations thrown at you that there was no other way but to succeed. Like failure, not to say it was a like failure, but like not doing that was not an option. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a challenging task that's ahead of us, but you know, it's, we're putting our head to the wind and we're confident in our, our abilities and the team that we have. And we're just pushing every day. 
Greenbri- Greenbrier, from what I read online, is not an easy place to finish and graduate from. There are, uh, it kind of can chew you up and spit you out. Is that a fair description of the program and how difficult it is? I would say that's a fair assessment, yes. Why is that? Just for people listening and myself, of course, that aren't familiar with it. Uh, so it's in West Virginia, right? And it's a it's a two year program, or is it a four year program? Uh, it it has changed over the years, um, but during my time there, I graduated in two thousand and nine. Um, it was a three year program, um, and they required you to work a season prior to being accepted to the program. Um, just to make sure that, you know, you had, you kind of knew what you, for one, knew what you were getting into. And two, it was more of like, let's say it was your freshman year. They were kind of feeling you out as well, you know, because they, they don't want you to commit and have yourself join this program. And then, you know, three weeks and be like, oh man, this is insane. I can't do this. So, you know, it's, there's a lot that's invested from, you know, the chefs and the, in the, in the team that was at the Greenbrier time. They invest a lot of time, resources, and energy into you. How is it different than a traditional culinary school experience? Is it significantly more rigorous? Are there different things that you learn that that either extend beyond a normal culinary curriculum or or does it sort of mimic that uh, CIA, FIC experience? Mm-hmm. Um, so... Apprenticeships are typically after one is graduated from culinary college, after they have um, completed their externship. And then the apprenticeship is more vocational. It's all hands-on. You're paid. It's not voluntary. Um, But the curriculum, the way it's set up, it's all practical. It's all used in the kitchen every day. It's stuff. It is information and knowledge and skill sets that I still use every day. It's, you know, one, one thing that we refer to there, it's as you're starting out into that program, you're, you're learning how to walk as a chef. You know, one of the chefs that was there that is actually the executive chef there now, chef Brian Skelding, he is one that is, I refer to as an, it's funny, somebody else mentioned this on an interview not too long ago with him that he is the one responsible for teaching us how to walk in a kitchen, how to walk with purpose, how to walk with determination. So it's real. They literally build you from the ground up there. And it's just, you know, just high standards, um, shooting for excellence, aiming for excellence and just really getting the best, becoming the best that you could be. How technically sound are you as a chef i don't want you to really just be be, i don't want you to just gloss over it and be humble but um like what what can you not do (laughs) is there anything that you say to yourself yeah i don't think i can do that Uh, um and of course we're going to talk about boku's door uh in context of my question um but go ahead and answer it before we we talk more about boku's door um, I, I am a fairly technical chef. Yes. I know, um, there, you know, I'm not saying that I'm the most technical by any means. There are a lot of chefs that are definitely more technical than I am, but I am my food and the way I approach my day to day, even as simply as we're doing some of the items on the menu now, like the burger, uh, the spinach, Caesar salad, etc. There is, I'm very technique driven. Yes. And Um, so when we're talking about just skills that one can acquire in a kitchen, you know, which is that, oh, I spent a little time at a meat restaurant and now I know how to butcher a couple different things. And I worked at a seafood restaurant. I'm fairly proficient in that. I worked in a bakery, but talk about just the general training that you went through, uh, for your Boku store experience and how long it was and how rigorous it was. It is intense. I, Obviously, have never gone through it myself. The closest comparison that I can imagine, and it sounds a little bit like the food Marines, if that's a fair comparison, uh, the amount of training that that went into it. Yeah. So, um, talk that's, a little bit about that <laughs> and and what that what that did to you. Yeah, that's kind of what the Greenbrier Apprenticeship was labeled as is like culinary boot camp. 
You know, it was like, we're like the Green Beret of chefs. <laughs> um, but training, like I was not a, I did not represent the United States at the Boku store, but I was um, in two, th- oh man, this is going back. What was it? 2017, I was one of three candidates that were selected to try out for the 2019 Boku store. Um, I came second to Chef Matthew Kirkley, who is currently in Hong Kong at the moment. Um, But that training, you know, kind of going back to the trajectory of my career, I was I was on the culinary United States Culinary Olympic team for two teams in a row. And that was just rigorous training and rigorous scheduling with that. So that was kind of teeing me up to try out for the Boku store um, team. But what that looked like, you know, it was imagine running a kitchen, you know, that's significant hours a week, but then having another full-time job on top of that. So it was, you know, staying till three, four in the morning, working on these intricate platter garnishes, these, you know, beautifully plated dishes and then having to execute, you know, let's say about eight hours worth of work in a five hour window with you and one other person. So it's, you know, it's, it's pretty daunting, but it's also, you know, very exciting as well. And when you're preparing for these, uh, for these challenges, do you know in advance what you are preparing for? Do they say, for example, Mm -hmm. you're preparing a, uh, multiple course meat feast and these components must be included or are you just kind of like prepping hundreds of recipes in anticipation of what they may choose no no they so specifically for when I tried out um, we knew that the platter was going to be um, snake river farm ribeye and then two months eight weeks before the actual day of the competition um they gave us what our seafood plate was going to be, which was Norwegian fjord trout, sea trout, um, so that we had to develop a dish that was, and they gave us requirements that we had to use. So it was the sea trout, uh, cucumbers, and carrots were three components that had to be showcased on that dish. So you you had it, you know, you can control all the variables going into it as far as recipes. Um, components, etc. Um, but the, the real challenge is, is really managing the time, driving as much flavor and technique into the food that you possibly can in the allotted time that they give you. Do you remember, can you estimate how many permutations you may have gone through with that fish dish Shoot. until you got it to where you wanted it? I, I mean, it was changing up until the last, the last day di- uh, before we went to Vegas. Yeah. I mean, there was multiple iterations of that dish. And what did you settle on? Uh, we, I took, we decided to take a, a variation of trout cambarasis, which is a straight out of the book from a scoffier. Uh, it's a trout dish that showcases carrots. Uh, it's a loin of trout that is larded with carrots. Um, but we kind of flipped that on its head. And I did a very elegantly poached trout that had a uh, curried carrot terrine that was on a, on top of it. We had vermouth braised carrot that, or vermouth braised cucumber that was filled with smoked trout belly that had a little brioche crouton on top with Ocetra caviar, um, a eggless trout cut or a carrot custard with a caviar blanc sauce with. Parisian micro Parisian cucumbers and some more trout caviar. Yeah, it was it was pretty it was pretty interesting to say the are, least. Are you sick of ribeye and trout still to this day, or have you come back around to any of those items that you were <laughs> that you were working with? It's funny you asked that. I just put trout on the menu at ten. <laughs> so it doesn't haunt you. You've overcome no. your. Uh, no. And so when you get there and you present it, mm-hmm. you are. You cook, are you cooking one plate to be judged or how, what exactly is the, once you got to Las Vegas, mm-hmm. what occurred? So it was, it was like, imagine traveling with four coolers packed full of food on airplanes, 
uh, and then you arrive in Las Vegas and it's humid, it's hot, it's busy. Uh, you meet some of the team there, the of the Mentor Foundation. You meet them there. They whisk you away in this, you know, this van, and you have all your luggage and all your food, and you're just hoping that everything made it okay. TSA didn't take anything. Pull up to the Venetian Hotel. There's more members of the Mentor team that greet you, and they you unload. You go straight into the bowels of the Venetian, or um, I think it was the Venetian. Um, then you're in the bowels of the Venetian, which is like a whole nother, I don't know if you've been to a Vegas hotel behind the scenes. It is monstrous. It's insane. Um, and then they, you know, we had a corner little, they had a corner set up for us in the bake shop, which the bake shop was like four times the size of the Tempest kitchen. Um, and we just set up shop there. We unpacked everything. We double checked everything. And, um, we had some small shopping and shipping items that came in and then we just hit the ground running. You know, the, the ribeye platter was a platter for 10. So you had 10 portions that are 12. There were 12 portions that are on the platter. So everything is put on the platter. So there was a main ribeye piece and there were two um, ribeye on croutes that were on there and there were three garnishes. Um, that's all placed on the platter, and then they parade that down in front of a panel of judges, take it to a table, and then you break the platter down with your comi and plate everything up, and then it's sent to the judges. Then you go back into the kitchen, or the fish plate was first, and that was 12 portions plated restaurant style. I had it mixed up there. And so after that experience, did you kind of feel like you could take anything on after that did it was it sort of did it deflate you in any way like how do you feel after that whole experience and you come in second um after that experience i was deflated as kind of an understatement i was devastated um we felt really good about our program we felt really good about the food that we were putting up i mean it was it was a great honor to even be considered for that competition and even to compete against and to compete with the chefs that were there, Chef Jeffrey Hayashi, who came in third, and then Chef Matthew Kirkley, who was in first. Um, just being included amongst those um, chefs were, I mean, it was incredible. But like, we've, we we were very confident going into it. We felt really good about what we did in our performance that day. Um, but it was really, in hindsight, looking back, it was, and I'm... I don't know where I'd be right now if we would have won. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's an, a hell of an experience. Like, you basically work in, you work in Yountville, California, in Napa Valley with, you know, it's the Bocuse house. And you, it's basically a year and a half of your training just for that competition with some of the best chefs in the world, like, surrounding you, supporting you every day. Um so, like, in hindsight, you know, I would have had to uproot the family, you know, move away for a period of time. But what really, what I really realized about myself is I was addicted to comp competing. I, I wanted to win more than anything else. I wanted to compete in this competition more than anything else. You know, I had relationships that suffered. Um, I lost employees. Um I was I was willing to do anything to win in this in any competition that like in hindsight looking back like that was I was I was addicted to working that hard and putting myself in those uh through that rigor. So how do you pull back from that? I mean it there is a certain amount of thrilling endorphins that fire yeah, yeah. from doing a competition that mm -hmm you know, maybe you can't achieve those in the exact same way by doing even uh, 200 covers at your own restaurant, which can be very thrilling and, yeah, and very yeah, exciting sure. and also fulfilling, but it's different. So how do you either, how did you either um, change your mindset so that you weren't obsessed with the competition or how did you sort of make peace with the fact that you had to maybe shift away from competition and focus on something else? Yeah. And I think, you know, what that focus is now is Tempest. You know, it was, it was prior to 
I made a subconscious decision prior to when I was in Vegas. Um, it was if I if I won this competition, I was selected to represent the United States at the Boku store. I would honorably and graciously accept that, and that would be the course that I was on. But if I were not to win, then I was going to chart a course of to open my own restaurant, and that's you know it was all, it's always the goal that's been on the horizon. Um, even after, even if I would have been selected for that competition, that would have been kind of like the next step, but I really used it is to kind of collect myself, really take time for my family. Cause I, you know, I have two kids and I didn't really know them because I was always either a working or B working on a competition. Like that. Yeah. They're, you know, I'd be. And when I was on the culinary Olympic team for the United or for the U S team, I would, for the Olympics, I would, you know, be in Germany for 14 days. Uh, there was another competition that we did that was in Luxembourg. I'd be there for 14 days, but then you're also practicing every month and that's traveling, you know, three or four days a month that you're away. So it was, I really took the time to focus on my family and focus on what the next move was going to be. And the next move was Tempest. We're going to take a quick break. Stick with us for more of The Line here on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. My name is Samantha Garner, and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Cheeselandian because I take cheese seriously, just like they do in Wisconsin. Cheeselandia is a community for loud and proud cheese lovers brought to life by Wisconsin Cheese. I know that I can always cook amazing food with their cheese, and it's even good enough just to snack on. As a Cheeselandia member, I know there is always a supportive community behind me who always gets as excited as I do about cheese. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. Check us out on Instagram at Cheeselandia. Welcome back to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. On today's episode, I welcome St. Louis native chef Ben Groupie. Here's the second half of the episode, talking about his restaurant, Tempest, that opened after a year of delays in October 2020. It's kind of amazing that you, you've been able to frame Tempest as almost like something you can control more and that won't take up as much of your time, even though operating a restaurant is perhaps the most difficult entrepreneurial job that anyone can embark on. But yet it seems like you looked at it as an opportunity to perhaps uh, refocus on things that were of a newfound importance to you. So when you began to really dig into Tempest more than the competition and pursuing your own project, what were the initial steps? Did you look for investors and look for a space? Did you take several months off to kind of just gather yourself and write a business plan? Uh, walk me through those those first couple months when you were figuring out what to do next. Mm-hmm. Um, it was... <laughs> it, 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 it happened a lot faster than I thought it was going to. Um, and I'm very grateful that it has happened the way it has. So I, I've been working on, you know, piecing together throughout my career what, you know, what this restaurant was going to be. Um, so, I, you know, I met my business partner and it was more or less through a text exchange. And then, you know, it was one of these opportunities that this is an opportunity that I cannot pass up. Um, so we hit the ground running. Um, and it's, you know, we had significant, some significant construction delays, some significant, you know, some design issues, um, and then COVID hit. So we were scheduled to open last September. And then with the construction delays, that put us through, you know, right around February. And then as we all know, what happened in March. Um, so the trajectory, I mean, it, it happened very quickly, I guess you could say. Um, and then it's been, it's been a lot of stop and go, stop and go. Is there 
any part of you that when you look back now, would you have liked to have opened in September 2019 and faced March and all these last couple months as a open, fully functional restaurant? Or in hindsight, do you almost, are you okay with the situation as how it's unfolded where you have actually opened up in the middle of COVID, which, um, which I want to talk about because it's mm-hmm. such an interesting decision to obviously you, you opened uh, in October of 2020. Yeah. Obviously, with the setbacks that you just discussed, that's right. almost that's about a year behind your initial schedule. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what are your thoughts now as we close out 2020? You know, which which way would you have preferred that it would have happened? We we are we are grateful for this, that we had the opportunity to open post. Um, we probably would not be having this conversation if we, if we made the decision to open prior. Um, it's just something I don't think we could have recovered from, from a brand standpoint, from a, um, we would have had to have, you know, furloughed our entire team and just with just getting started, we wouldn't have had, um, you know, enough traction built up to like sustain it. So, you know, we, we've had the fortunate opportunity that we were able to more or less hibernate throughout kind of those early months. Um, but what we did is we were, we were, you know, moving 110 miles an hour on menu. The menu is a hundred percent designed for takeout. It was the packaging. It was like, okay, the containers, the packaging, it all has to match. There's there's a purpose to everything. It's not just calling up a purveyor and be like, hey, I need some boxes and I need some bags. So it's we we took it seriously and our goal was to, you know, be one of the leaders in the pack when it came to curbside hospitality. You know, we want our guests to have an experience that is not just opening up a box and be like, oh, this is cool. I'm just gonna put it on a plate. It's like, oh wow, like it's we want it to be a very thoughtful, um, enjoyable experience. So that that's like what I mentioned, like that hibernation stage. It was like literally revamp the entire menu, and it's one hundred percent designed for takeout. We, you know, the dining room as today, it sits dark um, because we wanted to gear everything to takeout. Because the reality is. As hospitality professionals, our industry has changed forever. Like it's this this not to not to use the word the new normal, but like this model that we're operating with now and everyone is operating with, it's not just gonna, you know, the switch of the light's not gonna flip and it's like all gonna go back to normal. This is gonna stay with us forever. That is, you know, it's my opinion that the takeout curbside model will continually be a part of our restaurants and other restaurants platforms. If you would have opened normally in, in February, would takeout have even been part of the equation? No, it wasn't like I, no, not at all. So you went from, you went from being a restaurant that was going to be a 50 seat ish, uh, plated dine-in restaurant. Right, right. Uh, you know, we can call it, it, it was casual, but, all, but not in food, more in vibe, right? So, yeah. and then you have had to figure out an entire menu that uh, travels well and that right. people would be interested in purchasing from you, even though as a, as an owner operator, you don't have a track record in St. Louis no, because you, this is your, this is your first venture. So uh, how did you go about convincing people that they should give you a shot, a restaurant that had never been open before and say, Hey, come in and get carry out from us. Um, <laughs> because, uh, we just opened and we would love it if you would check us out. It's just, it's such a unique way to have your first experience with a right. restaurant is to never step inside and order online and say, I'll give it a shot. It's something that you traditionally do with a local, Mexican joint around the corner and you say, you know what? We'll try tacos from them. No problem. Um, 
so how did you convince people to to give you a shot uh, when they had never experienced your restaurant before? Um, I think a lot of it is based off of my some of the previous places I've been in. So more of my track record or my pedigree of places I've come from, um, which have been more of fine dining. Um, and that is, you know, we're, we fine dining kind of gets tossed around a lot. Like our plan and our goal for Tempest was to be like fine dining with hip hop and rock and roll. You know, it's, there's no white tablecloths. It's, we just, it's fine dining precision and executed food but extremely laid back atmosphere, fun, urban and energetic atmosphere. But like what we had, what was interesting and challenging for us with takeout and still is, is how are you, how are you delivering uh, hospitality through takeout? How are you delivering? How are you selling? You know, how are you setting yourself from the other apart from the other restaurants? Like why are, guests choosing to come to your place as opposed to the place down the street. And I think that's what we're seeing in our retention from our guests. It's, it's the quality of food that we're doing. It's the presentations of not necessarily the presentation of the food, but it's how, how the food is thoughtfully packaged, how it's delivered their thank you notes, the menus, the intention of, you know, like the, polenta bolognese dish that we all have on the menu it's it's very warm and not yes it's a hot dish but it's like it's kind of like that soul food that comfort food that people are and including myself are kind of craving especially during the season in st louis where it's cold and cloudy outside um but it's what we're having a lot of guest retention and it's spreading by word of mouth where obviously social media is a tool that we've been using um, frequently, but it, it's more of a grassroots kind of development. You know, we don't have like these marketing teams that are just bombarding the airwaves or the social media threads. We don't have, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers that, you know, it's great, but like we're taking a very grassroots approach and building this literally from the ground up because nobody's really done a takeout restaurant of this, not saying that of our caliber, but like how many people, how challenging is it to open a restaurant that you had in on the books for a full service restaurant? And then it's literally like, er, okay, now we're doing takeout. You know, that's kind of the reality that we're all in right now. Um, yeah. It's with a traditional opening, you really benefit from the, from the physical space and being right. able to invite people in and not only is there press but there's the word of mouth and also just people drive by and walk by mm -hmm. and all of that is unfortunately lost with covid and so as you've as you've switched gears and you're talking about these these changes that have taken place do you now have you rethought what tempest will be once once people can safely and at their own comfort level come out and dine and have a meal with you, are you going to revert back to your original concept or are you thinking that it will now be perhaps a hybrid model of what you're doing now and what you're planning to do before? Um, I mean, I think it's, you know, honestly, it's going to be a combination of both. You know, it's our ethos and the approach to food hasn't changed. You know, even though it may be like we have the, you know, I refer like the chicken sandwich that's on the menu. Like we spent two weeks working on this damn chicken sandwich and it's, you know, we're very happy with where it is. But like kind of going back to the technical components, it's like where that chicken sandwich started to where it is now. It's like night and day. But the technique that's into it, it's yeah, there's significant amount of work that goes into that sandwich. But the work that goes into it equates to repetition. The recipe is efficiently replicated. There is l almost zero waste that comes comes with it. So that's, in, you know, another great benefit to it. But it's the simplicity of execution and pickup. You know, it's. For the lack of better, it's a chicken sausage or a chicken farce. 
that is then treated like a, kind of like a Japanese katsu, but it's then seasoned like, you know, like a, like a Southern fried chicken. So it's very familiar. It's very, it's craveable. It's, it's, you look at it and be like, oh, it looks like a fast food chicken sandwich, but then you taste it and there's like real, there's a lot of work and depth of flavor that goes into it. So it's, you know, kind of what I mean by the ethos of Tempest. It's very familiar food is like you're reading it on the menu, like polenta bolognese, there's cod chowder, there's, you know, wedge salad. That's my style. Even if it were in the dining room, it's very familiar and identifiable. But then you, you know, you see the presentation and you, then you eat it and you're like, oh, wow, there's a lot going on here. That's not just a, you know, a chicken sandwich per se. It's, it's kind of taking it a little step further. I want to build on, you, you led me into my, my next question pretty perfectly, which is you sound obviously like someone who is a tinkerer and a recipe uh, tester over and over and over. And obviously we know <laughs> about your, your past history of, uh, of cooking a dish so many times you can't even remember how many different ways you made it. So right. I wonder how do you, or is it someone on your staff, how do you reel yourself in and say, you know what, this is good enough or it's great enough to be on the menu and I just have to walk away from it and put it on the menu and I'm not going to mess with it anymore yeah. or do you not do you not do that are you just putting a chicken sandwich on and every other day you're thinking to yourself I think I'm going to tweak it a little bit um everything's always in kind of a constant I don't want to say not everything's changing every day but everything's in a like a constant state of evolution um the basis, the foundation, the blueprint, the structure is still there, but there may be small tweaks to like, oh, this needs a little more acidity, this needs more a little more salinity, or vice versa. Um, we, I am, I'll admit, I'm the first one that will overwork and overcomplicate the simplest things. Um, but what I've really take with one thing I've really wanted to do with starting this project is showing restraint and more or less showing letting the items and the food and the ingredients more speak for itself as opposed to mucking it up with so many techniques, so many different flavors, you know, like I think a really good example is uh, <clears throat> this rice dish that we have on the menu. It's we're using Carolina gold rice, but it's really letting the rice shine. And it's, you know, we're, we're adding country ham to it. We make a country ham dashi. And then we have pickled, some pickled and preserved vegetables on it. But it's really letting the rice be the star. Um, and that's, you know, one thing that we're uh, really focused on throughout the menu and throughout how we approach things is, okay, this is a rice dish. This is a, a salmon dish or this is a octopus dish. And it's really, you know, everything that's going with it is accentuating that kind of main component of the dish and everything else is kind of playing, you know, support for that dish. But as far as like R and D goes, it's, we're doing it every day. Like right now we're working on this uh, celery root shawarma dish for the menu for a vegetarian menu. It's, you know, it's for the lack of better, a whole roasted head of, celery root that has that's cooked with shawarma spice and then there's a hazelnut curry crust on it with rice and we're trying to perfect or get as close to what we like as a traditional non bread that would go with it with preserved limes and it's just something that we're it's 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 a work in progress you know it's we have a couple R&D items going and then when we're happy with it we'll put it on the menu once you know the cost is figured out and all of that um, but we all, we always just have like so many projects going on. We have a lot of ferments going We're you know, our, uh, the sous chef Justin today just pulled out these beautiful blackened beets that we started four months ago that are, it, I mean, it's like the flavor is like coffee and licorice and dark chocolate, but it's beets. It's so interesting. Like, I don't know what we're going to do with it at the moment, but it's kind of like another tool in the arsenal per se. It's actually it's pro it, it sounds like it's exciting because yeah. you actually have some time and you have the ability to still be tinkering while you're 
uh, figuring things out because yeah. there's great flexibility right now, right? You're trying to figure things out for a to-go menu, but mm-hmm. at the same time, I assume that you're really also thinking about dishes that you could execute once uh, you are able to yeah. invite people yeah. back into the restaurant as well. Right. Uh, the the not-so-secret, dirty little secret about restaurants is that it's very difficult to make them work without alcohol. Food costs are a real killer and just generally profit margins are so slim anyways. <laughs> right. So now you're doing a a restaurant that uh, you can't get people to necessarily start off with a cocktail and then have a bottle of wine and then, uh, you know, the server convinces them that they should get a dessert. You've got to get them everything in one pickup or in, in yeah. you know, in one delivery. So I'm wondering... How do you uh, convince people or suggest to people to order a full, robust menu from you? And then the second part of that question is: Are you are you actually able to to make it work right now? I'm not asking you to you know open up your books to me, but right, I am right. curious. Like, is it is it working at all? You know, to be in this format during this uh, crazy COVID time. Um. So the first question to answer the first part. Um, about how to get the guests to experience a more robust full menu. It's, I think a lot of it has to do with how we have the menu set up and how you threw uh, our partner open table. Um, it's very, very user-friendly and it's very straightforward and it's extremely easy to use. So I think with, with having that, it helps out quite a bit. We are seeing from, I mean, I guess we're going into seven, eight weeks now. A, a lot of our guests are doing, you know, a full dining, I don't want to say experience, but like they are, you know, having multiple items. Um, now, granted, there are some that are, you know, just getting a sandwich and a side, um, but we're doing a significant amount of cocktail sales, which is very refreshing and exciting to see. Um you know, I think a lot of it comes to like the presentation and packaging that we've, how we're presenting some of the the items, you know, it's, it's very straightforward and streamlined. Um, but is this sustainable? That is, <laughs> it's, it's tough, man. I'm not going to lie. It's, we are surviving. Yes. Um, can it be better? Yes. But I think what we're doing, what our focus is, is just doing well-executed, thoughtful food. And we're, we have our, you know, kind of our sights set on this horizon for, you know, we're working towards the future. You know, we want to really excel with what we're doing and with the guest retention that we're seeing, it's, it's very motivating. When you wake up in the morning and you're going to your restaurant and it's not, you know, what you had thought it was going to be in, in September of 2019 or even February of this year. Uh, do you have days when you just like the frustration over almost overtakes you or, um, is your mindset in a, in a different spot? Are you looking at it, um, optimistically or, you know, is it a blend? Do you have good days and bad days? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a blend. You know, I was about four weeks ago. I mean, not going to lie. I was in a pretty dark spot. You know, it was, it was terrifying. Um, we went through some staffing. Um, you know, it's like we, it was almost one of those, we can't do anything right kind of feelings. Um, we were, we were slow as far as, um, you know, orders and reservations coming in. Uh, it was just really, it was just kind of like an all encompassing, emotional experience because it's like you're you're working your ass off every day like open to close you're um there's literally two of you in the kitchen that are just grinding it out and grinding it out and it's like it's it's almost like you're just treading and paddling and just trying to keep your head above water and then it's like oh man it's just so why is it so slow and it's it's very unmotivating but then it's like, you know, you're having that conversation with yourself. It's like, 
get your shit together, man. Like you're better than this. You have to stay motivated. You have to keep pushing. You know, it's really relying on the people around you to like pick each other up and move you forward. Because it's like, you don't want to be the guy that's just like, oh, this sucks and it's so slow and blah, 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 blah. But it's like, all right, guys, let's, you know, it's kind of like rallying the troops. Like, all right, what are we going to do to stay positive, stay motivated? And that's kind of been our our thing is like, we, you have to stay positive. You cannot focus on the negative. You have, there's, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel, but it's really being thoughtful and making these right decisions, making the decisions that are going to benefit you in the long run. But yeah, there, there. Don't get me wrong. There's some painful times, and continue to be painful times. You know, it's extremely stressful and frustrating. Yeah, unfortunately, the you know New Year's Eve is often a re uh, time to reset yourself mentally and physically, and you can start off a new year in a totally different way. But you know, we are gonna churning over the calendar into January 1st and we will still be in the same situation uh, yeah. you know as a as a business owner and as a as a restaurant in any city in the United States right now nothing magically resets on January 1st so it, it is it is a bit of a uh, there's no other way to describe it it just it messes with your head where normally you would be thinking of like the calendar year and you know Q1 of 2021, what are we going to do to get through January, February, March, April? But now you've got different uh, things layered on top of that that make it even more difficult. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, finding that positivity and that optimism in every single day is is definitely a challenge. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, if there's if there's one thing that you could say to someone in St. Louis who has not been to your restaurant yet, what would you say about Tempest that, what do you want people to think of when they think of your restaurant and when they consider going and when they tell someone, oh, have you heard about that restaurant Tempest? What's the, what do you want people to think about and to say to each other when they, when they talk about your restaurant? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is like, wow, that was just a really solid meal. Like it's, it's, Believe me, it's it's nothing life changing. It's nothing like, you know, it's not like an avant garde. Like, oh my god, this is I've never seen anything like this. It's just very well executed, sound, simple, thoughtful, delicious food. Like that was just a really good meal, you know. And that's at the end of the day, that's all we're really. That's all of us. That's what we're trying to is just cook and produce really good food. And, uh, you know, not to, and it's not that simple, you know, it's, 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 you know, I want the guest experience or somebody that hasn't been to Tempest just to hear is like, Oh, Hey, have you tried Tempest? Yeah. It, it was really like, it was really good, man. Like you should check it out. Um, and that's a lot of the feedback that we're hearing, you know, it's that, that's what's been motivating is the genuine, feedback that we're getting is it all positive no but we are taking some of that constructive criticism and we're thanking those guests for like thank you for sharing that we are going to do this and this and this to make it better um because at the end of the day everybody's you know everybody's just striving to do to be better than you are the next day sort of a crazy question to ask since you just opened and of course it's the pandemic, but when you were thinking in 2019 about opening, did you have a five or a, a 10 year plan in place that you thought, okay, I'll get Tempest going. I'll make it exactly what I want it to be. And then I know what I'm going to do after that. So did <laughs> you have, did you have a plan and is there any part of that plan that you look at right now, if you had it and you say it's still the same plan? Um, well, plan, as they say, plans change. <laughs> um, you know, there was no, like I had subconsciously, there's, you know, another concept that I want to do, but it's, it's, yeah, that's, not happening for a long time, but it's, it's, you know, one of those things, it's like the time's got to be right. 
and it's now we're a hundred percent focused on Tempest. So Tempest is located in uh, the Grove area of St. Louis. Correct. Yes. And can you talk a little bit about St. Louis just quickly, like as a snapshot, as a, uh, a culinary city, uh, you've obviously, you've lived there and grown up there. So mm-hmm. how have you seen it change in the last decade or so from a culinary standpoint? Um, for a culinary standpoint, or for St. Louis standpoint, St. Louis is, it's a small metropolitan area and then there's a large um, suburban surrounding. But as far as the city or the metropolitan area, it's divided up into many small neighborhoods. Um, so like the Grove neighborhood has a handful of restaurants, a handful of bars, a handful of, uh, there's a brewery, coffee shops, um, small kind of like mom and pop boutique shopping areas. It's probably one of the more, one of the more redeveloped areas that's going on in St. Louis now with, um, apartments and lofts, et cetera. But there's all these small little pockets and neighborhoods and what's, What's been exciting to see over the past five to 10 years is really thoughtful and interesting restaurants that are popping up in these small neighborhoods. So like each neighborhood kind of has their um, select eateries that they're going to, as opposed to like, let's say 10 years ago, like there was the restaurant that was downtown or a handful of restaurants that were in Clayton that were kind of like the quote unquote hotspots or the, you know, the, the more popular spots. And now what we're seeing is like, we're all these interesting, cool little places are kind of popping up in all these neighborhoods, which is exciting. So you're about eight weeks in right now. Is that fair? Yeah. About eight weeks in, uh, when when you think about your first uh eight weeks of operation there's obviously there's been some really hard days i'm sure uh what's been the what's been the brightest or the highest point so far since you've opened your restaurant that's a great question <laughs> um you know i think every day and every week it keeps improving but i would say the brightest spot was it was about a couple saturdays ago that was our busiest night that literally um came out of nowhere like we had some local press that was done earlier in the week and like we did more sales in one night than we did the previous two weeks and it was just like wow this, I mean, it was just exciting. It was fun. We were super busy. We were firing on all cylinders and it was just really exciting. But it was also like reassuring to go through that is like, this is what we can do. And this, like, we can, you know, we can sustain this. If it's like this every day, that's, you know, then that means we get to you know, more, we add more people to the team. We can increase the menu. We can, can really start pushing it. And really ever since then, it's the, it's been ticking up, which is, which has been exciting. Ben, thanks so much for chatting with me. Cool. Thank you. Tell everybody that's listening, uh, where they can find you, the address, and also if you can give out the uh, website where they can go to place orders and also what your Instagram is. Yeah. So we are Tempest Restaurant is located in St. Louis, Missouri at 4370 Manchester Avenue in the Grove neighborhood. Uh, the website for ordering is tempeststl.com. You can follow the order now open table link on our website. Uh, the Tempest Instagram is at Tempest, T-E-M-P-U-S-S-T-L.com. And my personal Instagram is at a Ben Groupie. And thank you and look forward to seeing you soon. Ben, thanks so much. Cool. Uh, good luck to your next couple months being open. I'm wishing a lot of success for you. And uh I hope that you can continue this momentum into 2021 and, you know, for you and everyone out there that's 
opening, just open, still open. I hope that there's uh, I hope that there's a strong next couple months in everybody's future so that we can all make it through the winter and uh, and turn the corner into into what is hopefully a amazing spring where uh, everyone will figuratively and literally uh, spring out of their homes and, <laughs> and, and, uh, and start going out and, uh, enjoying life again and enjoying restaurants and being together. So, right. uh, my best to you and your family, uh, stay safe. And, uh, I appreciate you taking some time to chat with me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Line. You can find this and over 100 more interviews on heritageradionetwork.org forward slash The Line or on Spotify or Apple Podcasts by searching for Heritage Radio Network, The Line. Thanks for listening. The Line is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter, Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.